Good morning, Bridgeway. Good to see everyone. Hi to everyone watching online, live stream, as well as on-site Rockland. Hi to you. And this is going to be a great morning. We get a chance to engage with God's Word in a special way. And I would like you to take out the handout sheet. If you got one of those that were handed at the front door, I'm going to give you the fill in the blank uh, here right up front. We are in part 40 of our Being Jesus series. We're right back into that series and I entitled today's message, Mysterious Ways. And while you're getting that sheet out, let me just read a couple verses to you. Uh, maybe you've heard these before. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Isaiah 40, 28, have you not known, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth, and his understanding is unsearchable. The fill in the blank on the sheet in front of you is this, our minds cannot comprehend all the ways of God. Our minds cannot comprehend all the ways of God. I don't know how many of you are familiar with the story of Job, but Job really is, was kind of an awesome guy. I mean, everything about him was great. I mean, he was Mr. Righteous. Everything was fantastic, and God gets Satan's attention and says, Hey, have you noticed my man, Job? Well, then Satan goes, Yeah, 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 what about him? And he's like, Well, he's pretty amazing. I mean, he praises me. He's, he's all about me. And Satan says, Yeah, well, the only reason why that is is because you shield him, you spoil him. God said, You really think that that is the reason? Well, let me demonstrate something to you. Go ahead, have at him tears him apart. By the time we get to midway into the story, his marriage is in shambles. His friends are absolutely no help whatsoever. He's lying there with boils on his body, completely distraught. He's, his children have been killed, and he's lost all of his wealth, fame, fortune, whatever you have. And he's lying there in the street, and you would think that God would come to him and say, Man, I'm so sorry about that. That's a drag. You know what I mean? When I got into that conversation, didn't know where it was going to lead. And, uh, and, well, this is rough. And so here's the reason why it all happened. Because actually, I was displaying you before all the angels and everything. I was, I was, glory was rising. Even as you cry, glory was rising up into the heavens. And this is all purposeful. And, and millions upon millions of people throughout the next thousands and thousands of years are going to be praising me because of your story. And I, I just want you to know why it was happening. He didn't say any of that. As a matter of fact, he comes flying in with a rebuke. He says, you know, Job, the way you're looking at me makes it seem like you're questioning my integrity. The way that you're talking to me, it's as if you're saying I'm a bad God or I'm a bad leader or I'm a bad shepherd and, and I, don't, I don't appreciate the way that you're looking at me. Let me make something very clear to you, son. I'm God and you're not. Where exactly were you when I made the world? You seem to think that you can put the pieces together and figure out what I'm doing and figure out what I'm like. You're missing it completely. Where were you when I laid the stars in the sky and I named them one by one? Who do you think you are? 
and you're thinking, man, that's, <laughs> that's brutal. I mean, the guy's all tore up, and, and you're getting in his face about, you know, what is your identity? You know, I mean, is that really polite? <laughs> Bottom line is that we don't get it a lot of the time. God's ways are so complicated. Here's what I believe, and, and, and this is not, does not say this in scripture. I'm going off on my own opinion, so you take it with a grain of salt. In my opinion, I believe that not only can God not tell us what he's doing because we wouldn't get it, but if we did get it, we wouldn't agree with him. And here's why. I don't think we value what he values. I think that if he truly laid out the plan as we see it right now, we would not think that is sufficient for the suffering that we are receiving. I believe that we look at things differently than he does, and I think that he has in mind priorities and agendas and ideas that we are not cool with at all. If he says something to you about a loss being worth it, from your vantage point, it's never worth it. And so I believe that him even sharing with us why he does what he does would actually be damaging, and the very act of not telling us is an act of mercy. Because we wouldn't get it. Listen, we are about to engage with two stories where the disciples who get to hang out with Jesus all the time don't get it. They're completely lost. They keep getting caught off guard with all this Jesus stuff. Things are happening around them and they don't get it. And they're, and they're thinking, man, well, why would you even ask me that? And, and why is that happening? And, 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 uh, and maybe you're a ghost. And, and they're just saying all these crazy things. They're just trying to stretch so hard to understand. And it's so funny because even later on after being with them for years, he still says, are you still so dull? Man, do you guys still not get it? You don't even know who I am. I've been trying to reveal myself to you over and over. I've demonstrated things to you. He even said to Israel, wandering in the desert, he said, you just saw 10 massive plagues raining down on Egypt. I just snapped the neck of the Egyptian empire to walk my children out. And you don't get it. He even said, your hearts are hard and you missed it. You didn't even understand all that miraculous stuff. I mean... Never underestimate the power of doubt. It's pretty powerful. Uh, let's dive right into this. Throw up the first scripture on the screen. It says, after this, after what? Well, depending on which gospel account, we are combining Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Why? Because this story of the feeding of the 5,000 is the only sign miracle other than the resurrection that's included in all four gospels. Why is this story highlighted by every one of the guys? Well, I don't know. I don't know, but when we get done, we're going to find out how powerful it is. But it says after this, depending on which guy you read, they mentioned something beforehand. In general, this is what we know. John the Baptist died. Jesus withdrew. He emerges out. He calls his 12 to him, and he says, guys, you're going on mission. Not on a mission. You're going on mission in life. I'm giving you all power and authority. I want you to get out there and I want you to go be me. 
I want you to go out and do everything that you see me do. I'm giving you authority over all demons. I'm giving you the authority to heal all sick. I'm giving you the authority to preach the kingdom of God. I want you to duplicate me. You've seen what I've done. Now it's your turn. Now it's not going to be one Jesus on earth. We're now going to have 13 of them running around because you 12 are going that way in twos. I'm going this way. So when we get back, let's meet back at home base in Capernaum. We'll talk about what we saw. We'll debrief a little bit and then we'll kind of have some community. It says after this, on their return to Jesus, the apostles told him all that they had done and taught. Now, I just want you to think about how exciting that would be. Really, that you're empowered to go do Jesus stuff. That you really have the ability to, you know, you have all these stories. You're like, there's this guy. And he was like, oh, rah, rah, rah. And then I was like, get out, demon. And then it was like, rah, and it comes screaming out. And you just, you're, you know, you're all hyped up like a little kid. And you're just trying to tell everybody, this is what's going on, you know. And then this one guy's hand was like, oh, rah, rah. And I was like, yay, be healed, you know. And then he, he you know what I'm talking about? Can you imagine listening to that on the radio? There's no visual. There's nothing. They're like, I believe that pastor has a demon. <laughs> I'm sure you thought that before. Anyway, here's what's so amazing about that. That's the Being Jesus series. What do you think we're doing? Uh, we're in part 40 of a series that apparently is going to last till Jesus comes. <laughs> and the whole point of the story, the whole point of the story is go out and do what he does. Because here's what really happens. Jesus says, it's better that I go away because I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit who's going to indwell you and then you are locked and loaded to be my body. Therefore, whatever my head determines, I want you to carry out in this world. Therefore, we are going to go worldwide. So all of us, it's not one Jesus on earth. Now there's millions of us. Let's go transform the world. Wow, is that real? I think it is. That's why I do what I do. It says, after this, on their return to Jesus, the apostles told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going and they had no leisure even to eat. Can we all agree that Jesus' ministry was pretty demanding? Okay, you're going to find that this whole story is very demanding on the disciples. He did his best to try to get them healthy boundaries. Hey, you guys, you need to mellow out. You need to get away by yourselves. We need to debrief. We got to have some healthy time. And, you know, I, I have a hard time when people write books about how to do ministry based on the life, earthly life of Jesus, right? And I've shared this with you before. Why? Normally, I would always say you are to live like Jesus and his example. However, remember, my other view is that everything is in context. Context, context, context. What's the context of how Jesus led his life here on earth in ministry? He was quiet and almost invisible for 30 years. All this prep, and then all of a sudden, boom, he has a three-year ministry, and he knows he's going to die. So when people start demonstrating Jesus' life, and they're like, well, you know what? Jesus never took a break. You know what? Jesus never took a break. He did this, and then he did this, and then he did this. And even when he was exhausted, he just pushed himself beyond the limit. Okay. You can duplicate Jesus' ministry if your context is you're going to minister for three years and die. Okay? Now, if that's your context, run on. That's, blow it out. 
okay? But if Jesus was going to minister over a longer period of time, I believe he would have added in a little bit different nuance to it and would have changed the context. So let's be very careful that we are following Jesus in the context that's appropriate for what he was doing. All right? Moves on. It says this. And he took his disciples and he withdrew from there, probably Capernaum, in a boat to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is also called the Sea of Tiberias, which is also called the Sea of Kinnereth. And it's also called Lake Gennesaret. Uh, just in case you're wondering, there's a lot of names. It is freshwater. Uh, whenever we think of the term sea, we think of salt water. It's actually a lake. It's the Jordan River comes in and feeds it from the north, and then it comes out of it in the south to go on down into the southern parts of Israel. And what's fascinating about it is it's really just where the Jordan River gets fat. That's really all it is. The Jordan River comes down, whoop. And then it just kind of filters off on the side. It's a deep lake, but remember, it's not very big. It's probably about the size of Folsom Lake. 13 miles at its longest, uh, 8, 9 miles at its widest. So this is not a massive, massive body of water, but it was where they kind of did a lot of their stuff. We're going to read a story uh, in a moment about this very lake. Um, It says, he took them to the other side to a desolate place by themselves for private time to a town called Bethsaida. Now, there's a bunch of things about geography. If you grabbed a map and you're like, I thought Bethsaida was over here. Most scholars believe there are multiple Bethsaidas. Why? Because apparently there has to be multiple everythings. Antioch, there's a bunch of Antiochs, and so they all had to be named something. There's Pisidian Antioch, and then there's Antioch of this and Antioch of that. There's a lot of them. So this Bethsaida um, is believed to be called Bethsaida Julius, and it is slightly at a different location than the fishing village of Bethsaida, where Philip is from. So we'll, we'll move forward. Most of you don't care anyway. All right. <laughs> it moves on. It says, when the large crowds, and there were many, many, many people following Jesus, but the crowds were unusually packed this time of year. Why? We're about to find out it's Passover. It's Passover time. When Passover time comes, you need to be thinking of pilgrims and everybody flocking in to the Holy Land for a very, very special time. Therefore, for example, if you think about uh, Ramadan and Mecca and its pilgrimage and all that stuff, you've got to think in the very same way about saying, listen, if you're in a surrounding region and you get a chance to celebrate Passover in Israel, especially if that's your family and your crew, what a beautiful opportunity. People are flocking in from all over the place. Families are traveling in from all these other nations, and so the crowds are swelled. When the large crowds saw Jesus and company going and recognized them, they followed him running on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of him. Now, if you're going to float across, they're in the northern part of the Sea of Galilee, if you're going to kind of float across slow... It's about maybe five miles across. The other folks can run around the top of the lake, and it's about eight, nine miles. But if they run, they can beat out the boat. Depends on how fast you're sailing or how fast you're rowing or whatever. It says, because they saw the signs that Jesus was doing on the sick, this could be the height of popularity of Jesus. Why do people want to hang out with Jesus so much? Well, it's kind of the same as today, right? We, we want something from him. That's kind of why we hang out with him. Uh, we, you know, they wanted food. They wanted a miracle. They wanted to see the freak show. They wanted healing. 
They want it, you know, and, and it, I would always, I always kind of think about this. I'm thinking, wouldn't it be neat if there was just people that hung around with Jesus and went, hi, Jesus, I got you coffee. And he's like, oh, that's really sweet. What can I do for you? Nothing. I'm good. Oh, okay. Well, what would you like to tell me? I just think you're awesome. Okay, and there's not a lot of those folks hanging around Jesus. Everybody wants something from him. And I was thinking, you know what? It sounds like our prayer lives. It sounds like every prayer that we have has the word I in it. You know what I mean? It's, it, should, it always starts out, Lord, I'm a sinner. Oh, okay, so we're talking about you. Uh, you know what? Uh, Lord, I'm having a hard time. Yeah, you are. Uh, Lord, I, and it always starts like that. And it, and it would be so nice if some of our prayers were, God, you're awesome. Uh, well, that's sweet, my child. What can I do for you? Nothing. I'm good. I'm pretty blessed, actually. Pretty spoiled. Uh, I think you're great. <laughs> It'd be nice. It says, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd. Well, why is he going to the other side to run away? Right? He's trying to get his guys away. He's trying to defend his men. He's trying to give them some break. And here comes a massive crowd again. Well, that's irritating. But instead of being irritated, look at Jesus' response. It says, and when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had what? Compassion on them. Interruption was not irritation for him. It was called ministry. And in our modern-day America, we are not designed out for interruption. We like to do ministry when it's scheduled. Okay, for example, I like to serve when I schedule out time to serve. But if someone just demands something of me, suddenly I don't feel like a servant. Suddenly I feel like somebody violated me. Um, we like to have someone over to minister to them when we are planned for it, but if they actually knocked on our door and just showed up, we would be agitated. You know, we are taught to have very private, very secluded lives, and I don't know if that allows us to be the salt and light that we're supposed to be. It, it says... <laughs> that was funny. It, <laughs> It's just one of those mornings. I just, uh, I'm already ready to laugh for no reason. Here we go. It says that he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Sheep without a shepherd, they were lost. That's the way that he sees the world. I know that we see the world as a bunch of people that are angry at God or we a bunch of people, oh, you're all sinners. And, and we, we play this game like as if we're Pharisees. And yet Jesus looks out and he's like, man, these are broken folks. I can't imagine walking away from them. I got to find out how to minister to them. Because um, think about what sheep are like. Remember, we're always kind of related to sheep in scripture. And I had a gal come up to me uh, last night when I was teaching and she said, you know, we have sheep. That's kind of what, what we do at our house. She's like, man, are they dumb? <laughs> and, and I thought, well, yeah, I think that's kind of the point. But, but here's, here's the funny thing. Sheep are just cotton balls with hooves. They have absolutely no way to defend themselves or provide for themselves. Only the rams will like go, oh, butt your head. You know, that's all they have. They don't even really do anything else. They don't have, they can't fight. They can't stand up. They can't, and all they do is just run into each other, you know, and then it's a cotton ball against a cotton ball and nothing happens. And really, they're just a lamb chop waiting to be eaten. 
and they can't get their own food. They, if they don't have a shepherd, they're just kind of like, yeah, I don't really know what I'm doing today, so <laughs> kind of lost. And, and that's kind of, God looks down, and he's like, wow, everybody is so lost. And Jesus went up on the mountain in a rolling hill area, and there he sat down with his disciples, and he welcomed the crowd, and he began to teach them many things and spoke to them of the kingdom of God. You know, we're supposed to speak of the kingdom of God. Do you even know what that means? It means talk about how God wants things. That's what the kingdom of God is. We say it in the Lord's Prayer. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come and thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What we're saying is, God, you want a certain thing to be here. You want your rule to be established here. You want to be glorified. You want people to be in line with your will. That is his kingdom. So what God was expressing through Jesus was going, let me just tell you about how God likes things. And so he was expressing that out to the, to the kids there. And he said, um, he taught of them the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. He healed their sick. Healing's a big, big part of Jesus' ministry. Why? Because he cares about his little sheep. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Go to the next passage. Now the day began to wear away, and it grew late. It was evening. Now I'm going to guess it's about 6, 7 p.m. Um, and the 12 disciples came to him and said, The day is now over. The hour is now late. Send the crowds away. Uh, Jesus, we were already tired when we started this whole gig this morning. Uh, we got interrupted, I get it, we played the kind of good disciple route, and we punched our clock, and we've been working another, I don't know, 12-hour day, so we're good, can you just send everybody away? Send the crowds away into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging, get provisions, and buy food for themselves, for we are here in a desolate place. Now, thankfully, someone is thinking practically, right? Because here's the thing, you got to have some Marthas around, you know what I'm talking about? you got to have Marthas around that realize it's getting late. Okay, people like me, I'm so merry, right, that I don't have a clue when people are supposed to eat or not. I, I will talk till someone just falls asleep and falls out a window and dies. You know what I mean? <laughs> I, I don't have any concept of practical need. At some point, I just go, man, I haven't eaten in like eight hours. I'm totally hungry. Okay, well, thankfully, somebody's practical and they're thinking ahead. So the disciples come to Jesus. They're like, Jesus, hey, whoa, 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 quick, check your watch. Check your watch. We've been here for a really long time. And it's about time to let these folks get moving. And Jesus' response was weird. He said to them, they don't need to go away. They're like, mm, yeah, they do. That's why I mentioned it. <laughs> uh, look at the last line of that part. What's he saying? You give them something to eat. All right. If you're an underliner, if you're a student of the word, you underline that phrase right there. Because if you understand that phrase, I believe you'll begin to unlock the kingdom of God. You give them something to eat. They're like, oh, Jesus, you don't understand the situation. Okay, so let's be practical, Lord. Here's the deal. There's a ton of people. We're not a lot of guys. We don't have a lot of food. This isn't going to work out. And so they said, just send them away. And Jesus said, I don't want them to go away. You fix it. Okay, real quick, and we don't have a lot of time to camp on this, I want you to think of what the problem is in our society and what's going on with the people around us that are legitimate problems. Okay, whatever that is right now, here's what Jesus would have said. Fix it. You're like, well, Jesus, what really bothers me is uh, human trafficking. Okay, fix it. Lord, I don't think you understand. That's kind of a big problem, and I'm just one person. Fix it. Well, God, just send them away. Go do something else. Go, let them go figure it out themselves. No, they don't need to go away. 
They came and you know about the problem. They're in your influence circle. They're around you. They're in your society. You think that's an accident? You're salt and light in their midst for a reason. Fix the problem. Stop telling me there's a problem if I've given you resources to fix it. Fix it. Well, God, I don't really have the resources. You sure? Because I think you do. Maybe you're not looking at the right thing that I'm looking at. And that's when we shift into the next portion of the story. Let me just say one more thing. Do you notice that Jesus is concerned about these people's hunger? You know what he could have said? I'm sorry, wait, wait, wait. I was ministering. What did you say, Andrew? Well, I just said it's getting late and people are hungry and everything. You know what he could have said? I didn't eat for 40 days in the desert and they can't, what, skip a meal? Come on, man. What is wrong with you? You're all a bunch of wimps around here. You know, there was none of that. There was an automatic, you're right. You're absolutely right. They need to eat. Do they have to eat? No. Is it nice to eat? Yeah, here's the funny thing. A lot of us won't pray certain things because we don't think God cares about that little thing. Oh, because Jesus is just all commando and tough, right? And so he's, you know, he only gives you the bare necessities and blah, blah, blah. And here's a ration for you, you know. I don't think that's how Jesus ministers to his kids. I think he is actually interested in what you're interested in. I think he does care about that stuff. Uh, Let's go to the next one. Jesus says to Philip, now depending on the village scenario, Philip's probably the most local guy. So he's going to go ahead and use him as a catalyst for a conversation. Jesus said to Philip, uh, where can we buy buy bread so these people may eat? Now you go, did Jesus really want to know that information? No. Look at the next line. He said this to test him for he himself knew what he was going to do. Why does Jesus ask questions? To get us to realize something. Okay? He, Jesus isn't like, ooh, this is a problem. I hadn't even thought about that. that. Well, there's a lot of people. Where do all these people come from, right? I mean, Jesus was tracking on the whole thing. He knew what was going on. And they, the whole crowd, the incredulous group of disciples, kind of jump in on the conversation. What, are we going to go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to all these people to eat? Then Philip, Mr. Practical, adds in, 200 denarii worth of bread would not even be enough for each of them to get a little bit. Okay, a denarii is one day common labor's wage. That means, let's say, our common laborers of today make 75 bucks a day, okay? 75 bucks a day times 200 days wages is 15 grand. This is a big tab. What they're literally saying is if we drop 15K right now, everybody only gets a little bit. That's, that's a lot of money. Did they have that on them? Were they actually asking, are you telling us to empty our pockets and do that? Do we really have 15 grand? Or are they merely pointing out, listen, even if we had 15 grand, that wouldn't be enough. I, I don't know. It's not very clear here. But look at how Jesus responds. And Jesus said, how many loaves do you have? Go check it out. Now that's weird. That takes a lot of faith. Why? Because they full well know where are they going to go? What are they going to look for? Hey, you know what, Jesus? I just went back to the van. You're absolutely right. We have $15,000 worth of food in there. I, I didn't even notice it. Simon was blocking it the way he was sitting. They're not going to find anything there. So what are you going to go look for? I mean, what do you walk around? And I don't know where I'm looking. I mean, I already know what we got. This is silly. But he goes out and checks. So one of the disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, well, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. Now, where did he get that from? Was it literally like, hey, kid, you going to eat that? <laughs> and he's like, why are you asking? He's like, big man needs it. 
You know, I, it wasn't like a bully situation. <laughs> there are the kids like, well, my mom packed it for me. She said, don't talk to strangers, you know. <laughs> I don't know how he got that or whether the kid was like, you know, had more faith than everybody else. He's like, well, I have a little happy meal. You can use this, right? I don't know what was going on in the scenario, but I need to clarify something about what his meal was. It was a child's meal. Because uh, here's why. Whenever you see it drawn up, like in children's cartoons, there's huge loaves of bread, you know? And then there's like these big, massive marlin-type fish, and they're like, you know, they're breaking them. And Okay, let me explain what the meal is actually like. The... Loaves are actually rolls that are flattened, and barley is the cheapest, coarsest bread, and it's for the poor. So we have poor little rolls that are flat, where a kid for a meal would eat five of them easy. The fish, they have no way to keep fish fresh. So you either eat it immediately, or they became famous in the area of Galilee for pickled and salted and dried sardine-sized fish. So they're little tiny fish. All you're supposed to do, that's a little bit of flavor to throw down the barley loaves. Okay? So think sardines and tiny rolls. That's actually the meal that this kid's dealing with. All right? And, and so Simon, Peter's brother, Andrew, says, but what are they for so many? Going, man, I'm failing to see the correlation here. I'm looking at resources. I'm looking at the problem. I'm not seeing it. Uh, and Jesus said, bring them here to me. Okay, this is another one of those pause, underline that line, and there's another key to the kingdom right there. Bring them to me. Now, this is the most obvious message, and you probably, if you grew up in the church, have heard this about 8,000 times. Okay, those of you that are new, let me bring you up to speed. Here's the obvious message. Your inadequate resources in the hands of Jesus is more than enough. Y'all know that. Uh, let me explain that God always works that way. So, for example, Moses. Y'all remember Moses? Everybody know there's a new movie of Moses coming out called Gods and Kings, right? Batman is Moses. That's messed up. Okay. Uh, Moses is up there, and he's at the burning bush, and God is trying to tell him, I need you to go back and talk to Pharaoh, and I want you to, and he's like, well, they're never going to listen to me. He's like, well, that's why we're going to do some miracles. Moses is like, well, I don't have a magic kit, and he said, well, what do you have in your hand? He's like, a uh, stick. And he goes, all right, that's great. Let's use that stick. Throw it down on the ground. Pff, becomes a snake. He's like, pick it up again. And Moses is like, wow, that's pretty cool. Okay, actually, he said, that's pretty cool. Because he, you know, because <laughs> he's Batman. Okay, nobody's hanging with me here. All right, got to be quick. All right. But what's the point? What's in your hand? What do you got? You got a stick? We can use a stick. I mean, what, what do you got? A Happy Meal? We can do that. What do you, what do you got? I don't care what you have. God is so infinitely creative and brilliant and so all-powerful. He's like, let's just work with what you got. Well, you know what? I'm kind of slow of speech and I'm kind of a... Okay, fine. We'll use Aaron to speak for you. This is ridiculous. I don't care how well you speak. I'm going to speak through you. And we watch all these regular average disciples become what looks like a superhero because of the power of God. It's not impressive people that move ministry forward. It's an impressive God that moves through average people that advances the kingdom. And we have to own that. Otherwise, we always think that we're not qualified. Whoever said anything about being qualified? I think you are called. I don't think you're qualified. I think that God makes you qualified. That's a whole different ballgame. And so it moves on. 
it says, uh, bring them here to me, for there were about 5,000 men. We'll get the full accounting later. And he ordered his disciples to command them to sit down in groups. Have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And he did so and had them all sit down in groups by hundreds and fifties on the green grass. Now there was much grass in the place. Uh, why did they mention that? Who cares? Uh, because there's a bunch of motifs going on in the background. And here's why. When Israel camped in the desert, they camped in organized groups around the banner and around the Ark of the Covenant. This word right here where he has them sit down and commands them in groups is a gardening term, and it means to be in organized groups. When Moses did the legal issues of settling disputes among the people, he had people watch over groups of 50s and 100s. This is all supposed to link you to the wilderness experience with the Israelites. This is Jesus showing that he's the greater Moses. Moses prayed for it, blessed them, and manna showed up. Jesus is about to multiply what? Bread. It's the same concept. He's demonstrating, listen, I am the greater Moses. I am who you've been waiting for. I'm the prophet like Moses that before he died, Moses said there will become another prophet just like me. And he's the one that's going to make it right. This is what we're talking about. This whole wilderness motif is going on underneath. I also need you to realize there's an Elijah motif going on because in the Old Testament, Elijah, the prophet who the Jews believe is a very, very, very important and powerful prophet, Elijah multiplied barley loaves and fed a bunch of people. He's doing the exact same thing here to demonstrate he's the greater Elijah as well. So there's all these motifs sliding around behind the scenes that a lot of the Jewish-minded folks would immediately click on and go, oh, I get it, I get it, I get it. He's doing that, 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 that. It takes us a little bit longer sometimes if we're Gentiles because we're a little slow, right? We're not used to all that. But it also mentions there's grass in the place. Why do we care about grass? Because he just said, I see them as sheep without a shepherd. Are you familiar with a psalm that talks about a shepherd? Oh, that's right, Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in, uh, I don't know, green grass right there. That's the point. So he already referred to the shepherd. He is the good shepherd. He's throwing that motif into the mix as well. He is providing for his people and allowing them to rest. Why? Because the ancient Jewish people would eat in a reclining fashion. So they're reclining on the grass, which is very similar to he makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. There's souls for my soul. You know all that, okay? So it moves on. It says, In taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. And when he had given thanks, he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples. The disciples set them before the crowds. I wonder what blessing he said. Because I bet you it's probably a magic formula. That if you knew his special prayer, you could multiply loaves and fishes, huh? Okay, do you understand how silly that sounds? We keep playing these silly games. You know what he said? I'll tell you exactly what prayer he prayed. Why? Because he prayed the same prayer that all Jewish daddies pray over the meal in the ancient world. And it's simply this prayer. God, you are so great. Thank you so much for being the giver of all good things. That was it. Here's the funny thing. The Jewish blessing over food that he would have used blesses God, not the food. We kind of get that whole weird thing wrong. We always kind of bless the food. Lord, please remove calories. <laughs> Father, don't let this congeal my heart and destroy me. You know, it's this kind of stuff. 
We always, God blesses food, bless the hands that made it. When in fact, the intent was always to bless God. I know blessing God sounds weird. How do you give the guy that has everything? You know, that kind of thing. How do you bless God? Well, God loves to be glorified and praised. So sometimes you should just go, God, you are wonderful. And thank you for great things. And then move on. There's nothing else after that. It's just, that's it. So Jesus does a normal dad's blessing over the food, looks up in heaven because that's the location of God and that's where everything is coming from. So he's giving all these kind of visual indicators. It's why the Jews would pray with their arms outstretched, looking up into heaven, they would pray standing up. It's the idea of there's your answer and solution. It's up there. It's not inside, you know, uh, like it's within the man. It's none of that. Yeah, I get we're indwelt by the Holy Spirit, so you can kind of, I mean, it's okay to bow your head. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. I'm saying that he was doing all these visual indicators to teach people about the God whom we serve. All right, keep moving on. It says, and when he had given thanks, he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples set them before the crowds. Okay, so what's the pattern? How much did Jesus hand to people directly? Nothing, actually. Um, I also want you to picture what he's doing with the fish. Remember, they're little tiny dry guys. So he's like, click, 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 click. And he's just handing out all this stuff, right? It wasn't like, there's fish juice everywhere. He's just clicking them off and handing them out and breaking loaves and doing that. But notice, he never gives it to the crowd directly. He always gives it through his people. Is there a metaphor here? Oh, it's called how the church works. Okay, God doesn't need us. He wants to use us. Why? Because we're his kids and he likes doing stuff with us. He can answer everyone's prayers without us, but he doesn't want to. If he wants to give a hug, it's through us. If he wants to minister to their financial needs, it's through our checkbook. If he wants to do something radical in the world, he'll use his kids to do it. That's why we're spread all over the place. Is he saying, I could do it without you. I don't want to do it without you. That's why I need you mobilized, locked, and ready to go. It says, And he divided the two fish among them all, as much as they wanted, and they all ate and were satisfied. Is God stingy? I don't, I don't think so. We've talked about that already a moment, so I'm going to move on. But I just need you to understand that a lot of us think that that God just wants to do the minimum. Because anything more than that is sin. You sure? In the Old Testament, abundance is just a sign of blessing. It says, they all ate and were satisfied, and he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. Is Jesus afraid of waste? Is he trying to talk about good stewardship? Maybe. But there's also an ancient Jewish custom that you leave something on your plate for the servants who served you because usually they were less fortunate than you were. And so you left something behind for them. Well, that's intriguing. Who served them today? The disciples. How many baskets do you think are going to get picked up? Twelve. How many disciples were there? There's twelve. Are we all tracking on this? It was a standard custom that God was saying, all right, and my boys will have leftovers to move forward with. So it says, gather up the leftover fragments and nothing may be lost. And what was left over was picked up. Twelve coffinos, twelve baskets. They're pitcher-shaped baskets of wicker that can fold flat. And each Jewish person that was traveling would always carry one with them. Why? Because they have to have 
strict kosher laws. You don't get a chance to just eat wherever you want. You can't just hang out in any restaurant and, and eat whatever's set before you. You carry your own gear in case you're into a place where you feel it would be dishonoring to the Lord. Therefore, you dip into your own bag and you pull out what you need for your mealtime. So it's common to have that basket with them. All the disciples would have one. So because they had just been on a big trip, they have all their baskets with them. Those are the ones that got filled. Okay? They're not these big, massive baskets. They're individual, personal-sized baskets. Uh, it says, it was full of broken pieces and of the fish left over, and there were those, and those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. Men and women did not eat together. They were separated out. How many kids, how many women were there? It doesn't even say. The phrase here in Greek is only males. That means what? Were there 3,000 men and women? Remember, families are coming in for Passover. How many people were really fed by this? Was it 8,000? Was it 10,000? Was it 15,000? We have no idea. But it's thousands upon thousands of people. Immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side. That word, made his disciples, is compelled. He was really serious about it. Guys, get out of here now. You're like, well, that's rude. And he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him on the other side to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowds. And you're thinking, oh, look, he's taking care of them. And he's, no, they're tired. They've had a long day. He's going to go try to get them a break. No, he's going to go make them row for about eight hours in the next story. No, he's not giving them rest. Why is he telling them to get out of there? Look at the next line. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew to the mountain by himself. He doesn't need his disciples caught up in that drama. Guys, get out of here real quick. This is getting ugly. Everybody is now saying, oh, you're the king, you're the king, you're the king. Maybe you can take over Rome. Maybe you could. And all these political aspirations start exploding out. And Jesus goes, guys, get out of here. Hey, crowd, real quick. Look at me. Look at me. All right. All right. Everybody calm down. We are not doing that. I'm just going to let you know right now. Yes, indeed. I have fed you. Yes, there's a bunch of things that I've taught to you. We are not playing the king thing today, so I need everyone to mellow out, and I want you all to go home. Everybody's good. Meanwhile, his disciples are gone. They don't need to get caught up in that, all right? And it goes right into the next story. It says, when evening came, now we're what, 8 p.m.? Maybe 9 p.m.? When evening came, his disciples went, went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum on the northeast corner. And after he had dismissed the crowds and had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. Jesus, exhausted, went to pray. I would have taken a nap. However, Jesus is Jesus and I'm not. Is there a room for solitude in the life of a believer? Do we need to be alone sometimes? Do we need to just be with a father? Yeah. Henri Nouwen, a gentleman that writes, he said, if we are not away from people in solitude, we can never be fully present with them when we're with them. When we're busy of mind, we're actually not with people. We're just glossing over them. So Jesus, he withdrew, and he would be with the Father, and he would just soak up and heal and become strong again. That was, he'd rather be in the lap of the Father than taking a nap. It's interesting. It says... Um, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, there he was alone on the land, but by this time 
was a long way from the disciples were a long way from the land on the sea beaten by the waves the sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing we all know about storms on the sea we talked about the whole jesus calming the storm before they had rowed for about three or four miles and saw and he saw that they were making headway painfully for the wind was against them it was now dark and jesus had not yet come to them if it's dark how could jesus see what they were doing on the lake i don't know what time of the year is it? Oh, that's right. It's mid-April. What festival is coming up? Passover. Do you realize Passover is designed around a full moon concept? So we have a bright, bright sky. Jesus is on the hill. The water is relatively flat, uh, even though you have waves. And he's watching his disciples the whole time they're straining. Uh, do we see the obvious metaphor here? Jesus, I'm storms of life they're wrecking me i'm exhausted i'm wiped out don't you even see me or care uh yeah actually i'm watching you right now well why aren't you doing anything about it well the same reason why i let lazarus die my buddy you, you don't get it i mean if i could sit there and go through it with you just understand it's for my glory well i don't understand that i know that's why i don't talk about it with you that much <laughs> he's watching them and it says it was dark Anytime the Bible says that it's dark, usually it refers to more of a mood. Nighttime is usually talking about something rough happening, things like that. It was now dark and Jesus hadn't come. You know, I can imagine they're out there. It's going to say he's going to come walking out to them at approximately 3 to 6 a.m. You know how long they've been rowing? That's terrible. Why would Jesus do that to him? Hmm. Do you understand real Christianity is not easy? You should never be a Christian because it's easy. You should never be a Christian because it makes everything nice. You should be a Christian because it's reality. You should be a Christian because it's right. That's why. But it's hard. It's hard. And in the fourth watch of the night, Romans had four different segments to break the night into. This was the fourth one. That's from 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. Then you go into daytime. He came to them walking on the sea, coming near the boat, and he meant to pass by them. Now, I had always laughed my whole life about that phrase he's about to pass by because it always looks like he's doing this. You know, he's kind of covering one and he's like sneaking by him. And you're like, where are you going? Well, you're just going to walk on the other side and just leave him there? Uh, I think we need to think of it more like the Moses passage when God passed by Moses. What was his point? To reveal his nature to him. Okay? So he was about to come near the boat. He's going next to them on purpose because his glory and nature was about to pass by them, just like the Moses thing. And it says, he meant to pass by them, but when all the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and cried out in fear, it's a ghost. Well, that's a logical explanation. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take heart, ego ami. What does that mean? I am. That's an I am statement right there. That's a Yahweh statement right there take heart i am don't be afraid if i am then you're okay if i'm here you're all right you do not fear if i'm the one that pardons who is it that condemns if i'm the one that protects you if i'm the one that loves you if i'm the one that cares for you who are you fearing if I'm the great ruler of the universe, who is your enemy that you're so worried about? What, these waves? You think I'm a ghost, so somehow you're going to get hurt by a ghost. Is that what you're telling me? It's me. Why did Jesus walk on water? I don't want to get too deep into this, but 
in ancient Jewish culture, water represented chaos, represented a lot of things. For example, if you remember at the creation account, the Holy Spirit was what? Hovering over the waters, the chaos. He was about to bring order to the chaos. There's an old, um, <clears throat> there's a story in the Old Testament where Elisha, the prophet, a guy's out there working and he's chopping wood with a borrowed axe and the axe head goes zing and it flies right off into the, into the lake. And everyone's like, oh, you're never getting that back. Because it's believed that once it went into the water, it went into the underworld. It went into chaos. And you're never allowed to get it back anymore. And Elisha's like, I'm sorry, excuse me, what did you say? Yeah. And the axe head floats to the surface and he scoops it off and hands it back going, no, my God's the God of everything. You understand that kind of point? So why was Jesus walking on water? Because on all the chaos, Jesus rises above it and just walks right through it. And he's like, don't you understand who I am? I'm not afraid of what you're afraid of. I'm in command of all of this. And Peter answered him, no, this is what's weird. Do you realize that Mark, the gospel writer, writes for Peter? But that's not where this story is found. It's only found in one gospel, in Matthew's. Why does Matthew record Peter's story, but Peter doesn't record Peter's story? Was he embarrassed? I have no idea. But it says this, Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you meaning I still don't believe it's you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, all right, come on out. So Peter got out of the boat, walked on the water, and came to Jesus. Don't tell me that one man has only walked on water in history. Two people walked on water at least. Peter walked on water too. It says, but when he saw the wind, he was afraid and began to sink, and he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, of you of little faith, why did you doubt? Why did Peter want to get out of the boat? I don't know, maybe he's just impulsive. Maybe he's just like, this boat's boring. I'm tired of being in this boat. I've been rowing for eight hours. I gotta get out of here. These people are driving me crazy. Or maybe he wanted to be where Jesus was. Maybe he wanted to do what Jesus did. Maybe he's all fired up about the fact that he just spent a couple weeks being Jesus out in the world and he's all amped and he's ready to go. And he's like, come on, if it's you, let's do this. Nobody else got out of the boat. Gotta give the guy some serious credit. He steps out of the boat and does the impossible. Do you understand? Feeding the 5,000, feeding the whatever, it's impossible. And yet it happened. Peter does the impossible. He stands out and he's like, whoa. Now, he was probably nervous the entire time. How do we know that? Because it says he saw the wind and the waves and that had an effect. Seriously, if you're going, whoa, what's up? Check me out, right? You're not worried about the wind and the waves. He's probably like, they shouldn't be doing this. Something's wrong here, right? The whole time, fear began to just eat away at his faith. You understand, fear has this massive drain impact on faith. So he's getting nervous about the whole thing, but it says he walked to Jesus. He probably went a good distance. And the whole time he's nervous, he's like, this is so crazy, so crazy. Matthew, check me out. He's just looking at all this stuff. And he gets all the way out to Jesus, and then he starts to doubt, and he starts to fall. Here's the other credit you've got to give Peter. When you start to drown, what is your job? Lord, help me. That, I mean, that's what you're supposed to do. You yell out, I need help here. And who do you direct it to? The king of kings. So he did everything right on that, but Jesus still has a rebuke for him. My son, what are, you, what are you doing? You were walking on water. Wasn't that awesome? Why are you caving? 
Come on, keep your eyes locked on me. Look at me, look at me, look at me, look at me, right? Is he saying, don't get your eyes off. Whenever you get your eyes off me and you're staring at your problems, your problems become bigger than your solution, which is your God. Get your eyes back on God, and then your problems begin to diminish. Amen. I mean, it's just all kinds of stories going all over, like a million sermons. Let's move on. <laughs> and when they got into the boat, the wind seized. That's cool. Once again, Jesus calms a storm. And you all know that, uh, you know, I think of that Casting Crown song when it talks about God, just calm the storm in me. You know, all the anxiety, all the fear, all the challenge, all the depression, all the scariness. God, just calm that storm. It's like my heart is full of storm. But God, when you say be quiet and be still, I get a sound mind. Everything quiets down and it's right. He keeps his mind in perfect peace, the man whose mind has stayed on him, right? God, give me that peace. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. And then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. What does that mean? Was that teleportation? Was it merely Jesus going, There is no way I'm rowing. I'm exhausted. <laughs> Boom! Oh, we're here! <laughs> hey! Look at that. Okay. Biggest line in the entire story right here. Ready? Change the screen. And they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves. But their hearts were hardened. What? They missed the loaves story. Seriously? You're carrying more than he started with, and you missed it. Never underestimate doubt. Never underestimate our ability to unwind a miracle and take the glory right out of it. What did they think happened? I kid you not, 8,000 people, you're the one that was distributing it. It's not like you didn't say, you know what he started with, you're in the conversation. Andrew, little boy, Happy Meal, blah, 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 right? You were there. And then 8,000 people eat, and you have leftovers, and all your buddies have leftovers, and you miss the miracle. How is that even possible? Wow, our hearts are so resistant. Well, I'm sure that wasn't a miracle. I'm sure that somehow when we were distributing, Jesus had some other possible supply route, and you know everybody was giving him stuff, and then blah, 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 right? We will try to outthink and figure out a way that it's normal to steal that glory from God. They didn't understand a massive miracle they were involved in. What a bummer. Here's my point, and, and I'll just close with this. How much are we missing? I, I get we can't fathom the works of God. As a matter of fact, he's so unsearchable that really in Proverbs we had to come down to this. Lean not on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge him. He'll direct your paths because you don't really know where you're going or what you're doing. And he's talking to us, right? What are we missing what glory is God not getting? How, what kind of stuff is going around us all the time? Do you understand there are angels watching us right now? 
Do you understand there's a whole spiritual realm happening? Do you understand that right now the Holy Spirit is touching our hearts and morphing us and changing us? And God in his presence is walking through this place. Do you understand that he is ministering to and he's opening hearts and he's touching minds and he's doing all this work right here in our midst and we're not giving him any credit for it because we can't see it. And since we only rely by sight and not by faith, we assume, man, there's a lot of weird coincidences that happen. I believe our prayer should be this. God, open our eyes. God, open our ears. God, open our hearts that we might glorify you for all that you are doing and all that you will do and all that you have done. Amen? Amen. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you. What a beautiful time to be with you. And we just want to tell you, Lord, we don't need anything right now. Uh, we probably do, but we're not going to talk about it. Uh, Lord, you are wonderful. You are great. You are extraordinary. You have blessed us and blessed us and blessed us. Our past is full of blessings. Our present is blessed. Our future in your hands is even more blessed. And so, God, we want to tell you, you are a great shepherd, a wonderful dad, and an amazing leader, and we will continue to say that until our hearts believe it. And so, be glorified today in our midst. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Have a wonderful week, and we'll see you next time.